If three billion people are worshiping today all over the world, how can they all be using the same book? And how can they be listening to the same word and promises of God? And how can they be worshiping the same Savior? If three billion Christians on this earth are worshiping this weekend, how is it possible it's the same book and the same God? Did not we say three weeks ago the three great miracles of God? Number one is creation. Number two, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And number three, the book that three billion people, no matter where they are, no matter whether it's traditional hymns or glory songs, same God, same book, decade after decade. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Sometimes when David wrote the Psalms, you can literally see the dark clouds gathering over his head. Sometimes he will describe to you why the dark clouds are there. Other times you can only surmise. Quite often when he writes the Psalms, he writes them beginning in anguish. But by the time any one of the Psalms he ever wrote is finished, you are uplifted by the fact that no matter what shadow was in his life, no matter what storm had come to him, at the end of every single one of those Psalms, there is this significant belief that God is with him and God will give him the strength. There is a rare psalm. It's Psalm 145. There are no dark clouds. When David woke up that morning or when he picked up the pen to write that night, all it was was unending praise to God. He never stopped. I don't know whether he signed an economic agreement with some country that bolstered the economy of Israel. I don't know if the Philistines were gathered in the hillside and then the spies came back and said, King David, we don't know what happened. They're just gone. We can't explain it. They're just gone. Something happened in his life on this particular day when he wrote Psalm 145. I want you to listen carefully to it. I want you to notice two things. There are two aspects of God. One is his power. One is his compassion. If I ask you which one was most important to you, you wouldn't really be able to give me an answer. If you have lost a son, if you are grieving the passing of a son or a daughter, and the grief is so stifling, you could barely breathe, then you want to know about his power. You want to know that the same one who created this earth also has the power to raise your loved one to everlasting life. And when you woke up this morning, because of this book and the promises therein, you woke up this morning saying, is one day closer to seeing him or her. That is God's power. But if you are suffering in some realm, in the mental or emotional, then you want his compassion. Then you want his compassion. And David mentions both. 
Psalm 145, beginning of verse 3. Great is my Lord, and most worthy of any praise I can give him. His greatness no one can begin to understand. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. One generation will commend your works to another. It is more than one theologian, including Luther himself, who said, if there was one generation that did not worship God, then Christianity would disappear from this earth. One generation will commend your works to another. Who told David about God? Well, Jesse did. Who did? Who told Jesse about God? Well, Obed did. And it goes all the way back to Ruth and Boaz in that book of Ruth. And David shared God with his children, including the mighty Solomon. One generation will talk about your works to another generation. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I personally, because of what you've just done for me, I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works. And I personally will proclaim your great deeds that you have done in my little life. They will all celebrate your abundant goodness. The Lord is gracious. He is compassionate. He is slow to anger. He is rich in bestowing love and mercy. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints have one purpose on this earth, and it is to extol you and to tell others about you so that everyone might know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor that exists in your kingdom. It is one powerful psalm. There's not a single dark cloud in anything he wrote in that psalm. Great, mighty, awesome. We didn't invent the word awesome, okay? We didn't look at Michael Jordan and say he's awesome. David invented the word. It's 2,900 years ago in this psalm. And when he talks about great and mighty and awesome, is he talking about the Assyrian Empire? Is he talking about the Babylonian Empire? Is he sitting there as a student of history saying, I can't believe these empires grew so powerful? Or is he talking about himself? I am great. I am mighty. I am awesome. I'm the greatest king that Israel ever had. The economic treaties that I have signed are extraordinary. They're coming from all over the world, and they're bowing down at my feet. When he talks about great and mighty and awesome, is he talking about himself? Not hardly. He's talking about the one in whose presence he wants to lie prostrate on the ground because he realizes who this is who has just touched his life. When he's saying great and mighty and awesome, he is talking about God. That is what we do in worship. Whether it's this worship this morning, whether it's a thousand people watching online before this week is over, whether it's the teaching and preaching about God Almighty and His Son Jesus that takes place with 245 students in our parochial school, whether it's talking about the great and mighty awesomeness of God in the 200, 300 people that will be involved in small groups, that is our purpose. 
When David gets through extolling God, then he says at the end of it, you know what my purpose is? It's writing this psalm. I didn't realize that trillions of people would be reading my psalms 2,900 years after I wrote them. My purpose is to extol God, and I'll do it in my psalms. Your purpose is to extol God. Do you realize that until three and a half years ago, the extolling of God amongst these people, our people here, happened in this sanctuary? And do you realize that by the end of the week, you'll have a thousand people having watched this service on YouTube or Facebook, Reveal and Traditional, and that astonishes me. And I don't know why God is doing it, but in the last couple of weeks, it has become very obvious to me, as I said a couple of weeks ago, that there are people listening out there who know nothing about God. For some bizarre reason, the Holy Spirit led them to listen to a service online, directed them to this place, and they're hearing about God for the first time. They haven't heard his promises before. They really don't know that much about him. Their moms and dads and their grandmas and their grandpas had nothing to do with their knowing about Jesus Christ. And they're connecting with us. And thousands of other churches have the same thing going on. I'll extol God to the 550 people that worship this weekend, but I will extol God to 1,500, 1,800. How many know who's in the room listening to a service? That is your purpose. In two or three weeks, you're going to be heading back to school. Maybe it's here. Maybe it's elementary school in, in one of the community publics. Maybe it's high school you're heading off to. Maybe it's college. Maybe the fraternity says, can you come about 10 days early? We need to do some talking here. You'll be leaving a certain place, Psalm 139. You'll be leaving a certain place and you'll be entering another place. Will you take him with you? Will you take him with you? The Iron Workers Union, the air turns blue as soon as you step in there, even if it's 8 o'clock in the morning. The stories make you shudder, and the language makes you say, Mama, I hope you're not hearing these words. Do you bring him with you to the Iron Workers Union? And are you courageous enough to make a stand for him? You don't have to stand on a pedestal and say, da-da-da-da-da, but will you make a stand for him? Will you stand for him? If God brings someone into your life right now who's lost a son or a daughter, and your son or your daughter passed to heaven a month ago, Will you be sufficient if God sets up the table for you and here's someone who's lost a loved one? Will you respond? Will you say, I know the pain they're going through and I have something that perhaps they don't have. I have the Lord God Almighty and His promises. Are you able? Your brother who doesn't know the Lord all that well, he just lost his job. You lost your job about five or six years ago, and that occasion caused you to get so close to God. 
and you haven't stopped being close to him, and now your brother's lost his job, and God is whispering to you, go to him, I will give you the words to say. You won't say too much. You won't say too little. I'll give you the words to say. He sets a table before us in the presence of our enemy, Psalm 23. He sets tables before us all the time. When I'm at LA Fitness and someone comes up to me and says, are, are you the pastor? And I say, yeah, I'm the pastor guy. He has set a table for me. It has nothing to do with anyone listening online. It has nothing to do with those sitting in the pew. It has something to do with this individual's life who God says, this day, it's not Jesus at Sychar's well. It's this Christian you're going to meet at the treadmill at LA Fitness. And will I have the courage? Will I have the time? Will I use whatever talents God's given me to open my mouth to this individual and tell him about the power and the majesty and the glory of God? What table does he set for you? Nurse there at Christ's hospital, parochial school teacher, public school teacher, union worker. What table does he set for you? One of our members had surgery three weeks ago. <laughs> she asked the doctor, just came, just came tumbling out of her mouth. She asked the doctor, would you pray for me? And the doctor said to her, do you know how rare that is? You know, maybe once every five years in the thousands of patients I have, do you know how rare that is for one of my patients before I do the surgery to ask me to pray for them. How did you know I was a Christian? And the lady said to him, I think God just told me, because I wasn't on planning now asking you to pray for me. And it just came out of my mouth. And she said, Pastor, no offense to you or Pastor Shower, <laughs> but that was one significant prayer. God sets the table. When that surgeon went to the hospital that morning, he didn't expect one of his patients to say, would you pray for me? And when the table was set, he was all over it. And the Spirit of God was all over it. There are two things that David mentions in this psalm. He mentions the power of God. He mentions the power of God. My son Jonathan in heaven 16 years because of the power of God raising Jesus from the dead. Because of the Holy Spirit working the power of God called faith within each one of us. The power of God is extraordinary. When you are in some tight fix, when you are in some jam, when you're fearful of losing your job, when you're fearful of being found out, when you hear a police siren in the distance, you wonder if they're coming to your house. When you go to the doctor on Monday morning and you haven't slept for three days because you're going to find out Monday morning whether that biopsy was cancer or whether it wasn't. There is one thing you rely upon. You rely upon the power of God. If he can open the waters of the Red Sea, he can handle whatever situation I have. 
Power of God extraordinarily important in our lives, but power in and of itself is a cold and lifeless and impersonal thing. You can't get close to power. Sorry, you cannot get close to power. You can look at it, you can beseech it, but you can't touch it because it's too powerful. You can't get closer to the sun than 93 million miles puts you. You get much closer, you're going to burn up. You sit and say... So many times, as do individuals on their deathbed, I'm about to face God, and I'm terrified. Luther himself, 18 months before he dies, he said, I pray that my fear of death, my fear of facing God, does not harm my faith. We all have fears. It's related to the power that God has. How can I, a sinful human being, as David wrote so often, how can I stand in the presence of God? When you need to have a discussion, do you go to your dad or you go to your mom? (laughs) I'm assuming you do what I did. You go to your mom. Okay, dad represents a power and authority. Mom has the gentle hearts. Here is David. He talks about the power of God, but he doesn't stop there. He talks about the compassion of God. The power is creation. The power is the Red Sea opening. The power is feeding 10,000. But the compassion is there as well. The compassion. Someone asked me this week after I got back from Lake Shelbyville, thank you, Wally and Linda, They asked me on Friday, does God get angry with me when my faith becomes weak? Does God, does powerful God get angry at me when my faith becomes weak? I said, you talk about the powerful God. Let me tell you about the compassionate God. Matthew 11, 28, what does Jesus say? He says, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. Come to me with whatever storms you face, whatever mountains you have to climb. Come to me. Not because I'm powerful. He doesn't use that word. He says, come to me because I am gentle and humble in heart. Check it out. Come to me because I am gentle and humble in heart. That's what draws us to him. Let me tell you a story. First Kings 18, his name is Elijah. Jezebel and Ahab have hired 850 prophets and priests to gather together from all over Palestine. And they have come to stand on the mountain called Carmel. And the prophet Elijah is there. And Jezebel says to them, I will pay you. To come to the mountain, I will take care of all of your expenses. I'll put you in a fancy motel. I'll take care of all your food. But I want you on that mountain to face Elijah. And we're going to bring him down and we're going to bring his God down. First Kings 18, beginning at verse 33. The priests and the prophets of Asherah and Baal, they have come together. They put the bigger sacrifice together that that worship of those gods had ever produced. It's as high as a mountain, their sacrifice. And they call down Baal and they call down Asterisk to consume the sacrifice. They do it for eight hours. 
And finally, Elijah begins to mock them. Maybe he's sleeping, crawl a little bit louder. Maybe if you beat yourselves up a little bit, he'll have compassion. Eight hours, nothing. And then Elijah offers a 63-word prayer. He offers a prayer to God. And God responds immediately with his power, not with his compassion. He responds with his power. A fire comes down from heaven so intense that the Bible says it burns up the sacrifice that had been drenched three times with water. It burns up the wood. It burns up the stones. How is that possible? And it burns up the soil. How is that possible? There is only one fire that ever matches that in intensity, and that is the fire that comes on the last day this earth ever stands. It was a significant moment in Israelite history, and God says, I'm going to give a flash of my power, and here comes this fire. The 850 prophets are killed. Ahab sends a message back to Jezebel 10 miles away. Let me tell you what just happened. Now when Pharaoh saw the power of God, he said, your God is stronger than ours. When King Darius saw Daniel get out of that lion's den, he says, your God is the God we shall worship. And he sends out a decree throughout all the nation. When Nebuchadnezzar sees Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego rescued from the fire, he says, your God is the God of the universe. And when King Sennacherib there in the book of Jonah, when Jonah comes and preaches, the king of Assyria says, this God we shall worship and we shall turn to him. Elijah thought... When Jezebel finds out that I have won, my God has won the victory. She will surrender. She'll bow down. She'll worship my God. She doesn't. She's so evil. She's so filled with Satan. She doesn't even look at what's happened. She said, you go back and tell Elijah that in 24 hours, he's going to be dead. What does Elijah do? He is overcome with fear. Twelve hours earlier, God has sent the fire from heaven. And now he is overcome with fear. He thinks Jezebel is stronger than God. And he runs into the wilderness. Is God angry at him? He said, I can't take this any longer, God. Take me to heaven. Is God angry at him? The question that I was asked, is God angry when your faith falters? Is he angry when your fear is stronger than your faith? What does God do to Elijah? Does he come into the desert, take him by the collar, shake him till he's blue in the face and say, are you kidding me, Elijah? What does he do with Elijah? He comes into the desert. He tiptoes into the camp. He fixes Elijah a breakfast. Gives him a cup of water, fixes him some cakes. Elijah, when he eats the meal, he falls fast asleep. Wakes up 36 hours later. And when he wakes up, God is still there and he fixes Elijah another meal. And he says, Elijah, you have to know me better. Go to Mount Sinai where Moses stood in 1500 B.C., Go to Mount Sinai, go to Mount Horeb. 
I'll come there and I'll visit with you. It's 40 days later. And there Elijah is on Mount Sinai. There's an earthquake that comes. God is not in the earthquake. There is a fire that comes, burns up everything on the mountainside. God is not in the fire. And there is a strong tornadic wind that tears the mountain apart. God is not in the wind. What is his point with Elijah? I'm not angry at you, Elijah. I'm not angry at you that your faith is so small. There is a gentle whisper. When the fire and the storm and the earthquake is done, he walks out to the ledge overlooking the valley, and there is a whisper of a breeze that comes to him. And Elijah smiles for the first time in 40 days. And he says, that's you, God, isn't it? That's you. That gentleman, the ones who are now contacting me online, tell me about faith. How does it work? Tell me if I'm strong in the faith one week and all of a sudden I'm back to my old life. Does God get angry at me? He's a God of great compassion. Micah 7.18, he takes our sin, tramples them under his feet, casts them into the depths of the sea. He is a God of great compassion. True story, and then I'm done. How many years ago? Nine, ten? Dear, dear, dear friend of Connie and myself. She's sick for about a year and a half. She doesn't want to see the doctor. When she does, she finds out her worst nightmare is true. She has ovarian cancer. She is sitting at Silver Cross Hospital, fourth floor. She's looking out at the farmland and the beauty that is outside of that particular hospital. She hears the door open. She hears footsteps come. She is facing the window and she feels her husband wrap his arms around her. And she says in great sorrow and despair, Ken, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And there's no response. And she turns and she looks and there's no one there. She felt the arms around her. She felt the hug. She heard the footsteps come into the room. There is no husband there. There is no pastor there. There is no doctor there. There is no nurse there. There is no one there. And at that moment, she knew who it was in that room with her. It was the compassionate Lord. Eight billion people on this earth. All the nightmares and storms going on. Are you kidding me? All the wars taking place. Are you kidding me? Eight billion people and God comes walking into Sandy's room and throws his arms around her. From that moment on, everything changed. She knew who was with her. God be with each of you, truly. Helping you to grow in the faith, helping Paul Strand to grow in his faith. May my faith be stronger than my fears. But when Paul Strand's fears are stronger than his faith, who comes, fixes me breakfast? The breakfast being his word, his promises, and his presence.
Little things matter to God. And you and I and our stuff, they are the little things. Keep us close to you, Lord, in our Savior's name. Amen. Heavenly Father, take the promises of your word on this particular Sunday, the sixth day of August. And whether someone is listening who is brand new to the faith or someone is listening who's known his Lord for 80 years, may you take the message that you have given us in your word, in the songs we sing, in the scriptures we read, and may you bring them gently into the hearts of your children. Such things we ask in our Lord's name. Amen. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.